All right, from God's word we read. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship this man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are all assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of our Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But I am writing to you so that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. May God bless for understanding this reading from his word. So I find reading the news is kind of risky business at times, right? It can be this, this the unending list of tragedies that you can't really do anything about. Too much news can be bad for your soul. The, the small number of the biggest and scariest and saddest things will be reported and the far greater number of small or good or encouraging things happening in many places can be hard to find. And this is also true when it comes to the church. There are not a lot of high-profile media attention that goes to churches or Christian organizations for opening new food banks or launching debt forgiveness programs or helping tackle homelessness in their communities or encouraging healthy dialogue about important issues. Unfortunately, if I see a, you know, a front-page story about the, the church, I know it's, it's not going to be good. We went through this uh, our own selves. There was the Independent Baptist Church here in Nova Scotia that didn't follow the COVID health rules for their camp meetings and helped cause an outbreak that led to, to several deaths here in Nova Scotia. There are, of course, the regular scandals of celebrity pastors, and not just in the U.S. either. It was recently a teaching pastor of a major, one of a biggest churches in Ontario, if not the biggest, who was removed for sexual misconduct, who preyed on at least one woman he's counseled, and more have come forward since. And this was someone who spoke at one of the annual meetings of, a, of a, the Atlantic Baptist where I attended. I listened to him speak over multiple nights as our guest preacher. If you hate hearing news about Christians behaving badly, then you have something in common with the Apostle Paul because he cared a great deal about the impression that the early churches were leaving on the people around them. This was extremely important to his desire to spread the gospel across the Roman Empire. 
And the, the churches, they could not afford to look like communities with lower moral standards than the world around them. I mean, what would that say about Jesus? But that's exactly what Paul learned was happening in the church in Corinth as we reach chapter 5 of the book of 1 Corinthians. And so this morning, we're going to explore this next section of this book, get a little insight into a challenging passage about a challenging problem, and see what it might say about the role that we play in church community today. So this is, the, this is now the second message we ha- that has us studying the book of 1 Corinthians, where we're going to be until the end of June. And if you missed last Sunday, or you know you forgot already, we learned a bit about the city of Corinth. It was this bustling Roman port city with a reputation for greed and sexual immorality. And Paul, the author of this letter, he knew this church well. He'd spent about a year and a half with them several years before. And uh, he maintained contact with the people of Corinth. And people would tell him about some of the issues that were happening in that church, and he would respond with letters to help them try to sort these things out. And two of these letters became part of our New Testament. And last week, we started right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, and we looked at how the church was being encouraged to have harmony in the midst of its diversity. They should have a consistent public message, not become divided. They ought to be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, the first four chapters of this book focus on one main divisive issue, which was that the people were forming all these different factions based on the leader that they liked best. But as we reach chapter 5, we shift into a new section, because Paul informs the Corinthians that actually he's heard about something even more distressing about them. He didn't lead with the biggest issue. He saves that for a second. And he says, look, I've heard there's sexual immorality happening in the church of the kind that the Jewish and Greek communities would never even stand for, but you're proud, you're tolerating it, you're excited about how open-minded and accepting you are of what's going on. And I don't think you realize the harm that you are doing by refusing to act, the harm to the church community, the harm to the person who is involved in this situation, and the harm to the witness of the church in the wider world. So what's going on? And based on everything that Paul tells us, the scenario appears to be this, that there is a man who's part of this church, and he's in this ongoing sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. And it's not clear if they're married or if they're living together, whether the father has died or the mother-in-law divorced the father to be with the son, but none of those details really change the fact that this is bad. This is really not okay. And maybe in the city of Corinth, among some of the pagans, this wasn't that remarkable. This was a very libertine culture, which is why Paul talks about sexual immorality so much, because it was such a, a major issue associated with that city, a struggle for that church. But both... Jewish and Greek teachers condemned this kind of behavior. You do not marry or shack up with your mom, even if she's not your biological mom. Leviticus 20.11, in fact, says, if a man has sexual relations with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, Paul, of course, doesn't advocate for the death penalty. The church is not ancient Israel. The correct response, he says, is, you know, is... Mourning, first of all. There should be deep sadness and regret that this is happening in their midst. And not only that, but Paul says, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he proceeds to explain what he feels the consequences should be. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord." 
So Paul wants the Corinthians to, he wants the church to gather publicly to expel this person from the church. No more participation in the life of the church so long as he refuses to repent of what he's doing. And the language here can be a bit confusing, right? Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Sounds especially ominous. But it doesn't mean that they are cursing this man or that they are condemning him to hell in some way. In Paul's thinking, the church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. And so if you remove this man from the Christian community, well, then you're sending him to the only other kingdom that's available, which is the kingdom of Satan. And Paul expects that to be an unpleasant experience for him. Now, there are groups and sects and cults today that will banish or disown people uh, for things like this or for any other thing, depending on what they, what they choose to value. Jehovah's Witnesses are one, for example, that practice shunning at times. And if someone has been shunned, then the whole congregation is not to have any contact with them at all. Don't speak to them, don't socialize with them in any way, even if they're a family member, even if it's your child. This is not what we are talking about in 1 Corinthians 5, but you need to get a little farther into the chapter to see that. So if we carry on, Paul says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? And this boasting uh, seems to be their response to the man's living situation. They, they were prideful of how gracious and how accepting they were being by ignoring his very public sin. And Paul did not think that was something to boast about. And the danger, he said, has to do with the yeast. You know, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch? And this is actually a concept that appears in Scripture several different times, where the yeast's transforming power in bread is a metaphor for how one bad example or one uh, person doing the wrong thing in a community can corrupt a larger group. And also, the yeast, it changes the dough from within. And that's important here because that's Paul's focus. It's on the insiders, the Christians who are part of this church. Paul doesn't have anything to say at all about the stepmother in this ugly situation, presumably because she is not a Christian. And so Paul writes, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? There'd been a previous letter that Paul wrote, and he had said something that they misunderstood. Paul told them not to associate with sexually immoral people, and they thought he meant sexually immoral people in the outside world, in the general population of Corinth, and not the people in the church. And so that, they got it backwards. They thought he was talking about the world and not the church, and it was the other way around. And so Paul clarifies this. He says, no, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. Right? He says, I didn't ask you not to have contact with non-Christians who live like non-Christians. You can have contact, you can be in relationship with people who don't adopt the values of our community because they don't follow Jesus. How would you avoid that other than leaving this world altogether? But then Paul concludes, but now I am writing to say that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Expel the wicked person from among you. And so again, to paraphrase, he's saying, look, the problem is not people outside the church acting in a certain wicked or sinful way. That is normal. The problem is people inside the church acting in that same sinful way 
and the church putting up with that. Because you can't be in a community without a code of conduct of some kind, without a standard that you hold together. Every community has boundaries. It, has, it shares common beliefs that link the community together. And so a person, especially today, you can come to a church, you can go to events, you can help out with things. You don't have to be a believer for that. That's completely fine. You can belong before you believe, and that is a beautiful thing about the church. But once you believe, once you choose to commit to a community of faith, you can and should be expected to live according to the values and the priorities of that community. And if you do that, then you should benefit from the fellowship, from the teaching, from the encouragement, and the support and worship that that community offers. But if someone openly rejects those standards, and despite the efforts of the community to teach and correct them, if they continue to act in a way that opposes what that community stands for, then they are supposed to remove them. Otherwise, the integrity and the witness of the whole community suffers. And so the way I see this, Paul is simply saying, if this man insists on acting like an unbeliever, then you need to treat him that way. Otherwise, the term believer is not going to mean very much. And if he can continue to enjoy, enjoy all the benefits of being in this community while opposing what it stands for, while weakening it, while corrupting it, well, first of all, he has no pressure to change. And second of all, he will likely exert pressure on the rest of you to change, to be more like him. So to be clear, it's not that he made a mistake and he's sorry. He is continuing to carry on doing what he knows is completely against the values of his church while still trying to participate in the life of the community. And so if this relationship with his stepmother means more to him than his relationship with Jesus, then he should at least have the good grace to leave the church and admit he is not willing to obey God. But since he won't do that, Paul says the church has to step in and do it for him. And this is not shunning. When Paul says you must not associate with someone or do not even eat with such people, I understand that to refer to the church community life and not relationships in every form of contact. Because the early church was a little different than what we kind of experience now. They often had meals together that concluded with communion. Community life and worship were woven together in a way that's often different from churches now. And so these kinds of meetings and meals, this was the core of the life of that church. And Paul is saying, this is what you have to expel him from. And that was a big deal. But it didn't mean his family couldn't talk to him anymore or that his friends from the church couldn't reach out and try to counsel him. It means treating him like an unbeliever. And they were welcome to associate with unbelievers so long as they didn't adopt their ways. It's important to say that the goal here is not punishment. Paul wants this experience of public rebuke and expulsion to lead to his repentance so he can be restored to the community. And the book of 2 Corinthians suggests to us that this is, in fact, what did happen. That the immoral brother, as he's called, repented and returned to the church. And because he was genuinely remorseful, Paul instructs the Corinthians to forgive and comfort him so that he's not overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Once it finally sunk in what he'd been doing and how wrong it was, he said, show forgiveness, show grace, show comfort. Allow him to feel welcome again back with you. It looks like the wake-up call of being treated as an unbeliever worked in this case. Not that it's a promise that it will work in every case, but that here it did. Now today's passage is important in one, for, in one aspect for churches wrestling with how to conduct what's sometimes called church discipline. 
And that is a complicated thing and one no church should take lightly, but it, it can be necessary. You know, I talked about the church showing up in the news at the beginning. And I mean, think of the news stories that you wouldn't want to see or that you wouldn't want to be associated with, right? Accused serial killer found to be member of Baptist Church in Lower Sackville, right? Congregation members say they knew he murdered people occasionally, but they did not want to interfere with his personal life, right? He never murdered anyone in the church, so it's, you know, we didn't want to, we didn't want to, you know, get involved. I mean, obviously, if someone in the church were a serial killer, first call should be to the police here, but it would also be a good idea to remove that person from membership in the church, as well as from any position that they were to hold in that church. Otherwise, you are saying your community approves of the evil things they're choosing to do in some way. And of course, most sin issues in a church are not that straightforward. Most churches today don't restrict things to believers only either, so it looks different. You can come to a worship service, a small group, without professing faith and, and still be welcomed. And my, or with not just not professing faith, but having serious messiness in your lives, and I hope and pray still be welcomed. But my hope would be that anyone who's still spiritually uncertain would eventually reach the point thanks in part to the life of the community and the love of Christ they find there, that they'd be able to say, Jesus, I don't know everything I need to know, and I'm not sure I feel everything I ought to feel, but I do believe in you. I do believe in what you did for me on the cross, and so help me to start to know you. Help me to live as your follower. You can pray something like this anytime and pursue Christian discipleship for real. But until then, anyone who's respectful of what we're doing, of course, can come and participate. And so in modern church discipline, usually treating someone like an unbeliever simply means perhaps uh, revoking church membership if they were members, although, and perhaps uh, removing them from positions of trust or responsibility because they, they can't be held up as a positive example to others. Okay, brief pause, brief realignment here. Because I hope this has made some sense of this somewhat challenging passage and about what church discipline is and what it isn't. But at this point, you might be wondering why. On the, the day we're dedicating my, my son, I would pick a passage that's about incest and excommunication, okay? And I didn't pick this passage specifically for the child dedication. This is kind of how just the series rolled out. But I do have, I think, a connection, and I hope an important one. And by the way, it's not because at the end of the service we're planning to kick anyone out or anything. Just please don't be nervous about this. This is not where we're going. Rather, I just would like, you, like to ask that question of what's happening if we stand as a congregation and if we, we pledge our best, especially to those youngest people in our church family, as we do when we dedicate children in our midst. What do we think that means? Is it, well, okay, I might volunteer in the Sunday school, or I mean, I'm, I'm going to at least help keep the lights on. Okay, that helps. But I hope that's not all of it. And I hope it's even more, too, than deciding that, well, yes, I will be nice to the children here, and you know, I will even try to take some interest in their lives as they, as they grow up in our midst. That's valuable and wonderful, too. But it's still not all that we can and should bring to these children we've agreed to support. And who need the best from us. Because they need us to act like a community of believers, carefully and consistently. Or to put it a different way, one of the best things that we can offer to others, whether they are young or old, is the opportunity to belong to a community that isn't judgmental, but does properly judge itself. 
And if you remember back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul began with the greeting that also defines a big part of what church community is. He says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Sanctified means set apart. We're to be a community that is set apart from the rest of the world, set apart from its way of thinking and from its allegiances and loyalties, and to be the people who, as Paul writes, to be set apart from sexual immorality or greed or swindling or idolatry. We are called, he says, to be God's holy people. And the community should look then and feel and truly be different from what you find in any other. Not a social club that gathers in the shadow of a cross or people who are simply finding comfort in familiar rituals, but those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Or in other words, desire to be Christ-like and make sure you show it. Because if as a community we fail to do this, then guess who the very first people to notice will be? Right? It will be those children growing up in our midst, wondering why it is that they're being taught one thing in Sunday school when the grown-ups don't actually seem to live that way. If we fail to rightly judge ourselves, then well, they'll be the ones who end up casting judgment on whether we are sincere in our beliefs or if we are hypocrites. And there are many people raised in churches who haven't been back in a very long time because of the judgment that they made in this regard, and sometimes rightly. I believe that the very best way to honor our commitment to to this is just to make sure that we are building a good community for them and for the rest of us, ensuring that that unfortunate scenario I described isn't what happens, you know, much, because we're human and we're going to mess it up sometimes. But Heavenly Father, let them see that we are sincerely trying with your help. As a church, we are called to tend to who we are, first and foremost, to the character of our community that we form together. And so contrary to so much of the political idolatry and the culture warring that has captivated so much of the North American church, the Bible, as I understand it, doesn't ask us to fear for our future. It doesn't say we should make enemies of those who disagree with us or that we should spend our time even railing against the sins of those outside the church. Paul did not think that was his business. His business was making sure those inside the church actually lived differently. And to me, that means teaching and encouraging each other in faithfulness. It means recognizing and confessing our own sin. It means seeking to grow in our love for one another and for those people outside our faith community who do not yet know the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And so that's what I hope our youngest members of our church family will see and one day fully participate in. They'll need that in community as they grow up in a world that is changing faster and faster, in a world that is not going to support or encourage their faith journey. They need to see what it looks like to be set apart so that they're not blindly caught up in the ways of this world, some of which are deeply harmful. And so let that be our challenge today, just to reflect, to judge ourselves with lots of love and grace And say, am I willing to be someone set apart for Jesus? Are there things in my life that are odds with being fully a part of a community that desires to be like Jesus? Again, this is not for those who have not made a faith commitment, but who are just kind of trying to walk with us as they seek answers. This is for those who gladly call themselves disciples of Jesus. 
Are we willing to live in a way that will make the kids in our midst want what we have? Will you be one of the reasons that some little one begins following Jesus Christ? Let's ask the Holy Spirit for guidance and encouragement in this. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for the gift of of church community. It is so much of the reason that I am who I am and that I am where I am. And so, Lord God, I pray that in our imperfect way, we would be able to offer that community, God, especially to those young ones in our midst who will be so strongly formed and shaped by what they experience here, by what they see here, by whether or not they see a difference here than they do from other places. And Lord Jesus, if we can be that community for them, it will bless all of us too, because that only makes us better. It only makes us more like you. It only makes us more filled with your love, and we all benefit from that. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would help us, in, especially in our individualistic culture, to realize that everywhere we go, we are still connected to this community. We're still representing your son, Jesus Christ. And each thing we say, and each thing we do, and each decision we make, and the way that we treat each and every person that we come across, Lord Jesus, we are, we are still bound to you and your church. And so I pray that you would help us, Lord God, to be a people set apart, a people pursuing holiness, a people who will rightly and properly judge ourselves and our community to help make it more the way that it should be. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.